Thank you so much. And uh, we have now our Explorers and Pathfinders class beginning their time together. Thank you. And thank you, teachers, again. Y'all wave at teachers. Say, thank you, teachers. <laughs> okay. We love it. Thank you so much. Well, today... I do pray it's a really refreshing weekend for each of you. There's so many areas of life to be expanded upon in our walk with God to understand how great His grace is. The grace of God is, is dynamic. In John 1.16, the Bible speaks of our personal relationship with the living Savior, the Word made flesh, and it says, out of the fullness of His grace, we have all received one grace upon another upon another. A picture of the overflowing abundance of God's grace. You could be here today and there's something that's a pressure point in your life. There are a couple have mentioned already a need just for uh, healing for something in their body. Um, direction in our lives. Comfort and consolation and care for the ones that we love. As we've shared today, this has been such a, such a grief-stricken week for us. We've just walked through. It's so, so sad, and whenever we face these times of sadness, again, we're reminded so vividly of the life-giving grace that God pours upon us uh, that comes from that living personal relationship with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So together, we advance in grace. Now, I want to ask you today to think a little bit. You could find in your Bible the text there that's on the screen, 2 Kings 19. I'd like to ask you to think as you find that in your Bible. Open your Old Testament to 2 Kings 19. Think for a moment about kind of an odd imagination. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were born 300 years ago? Oh, I know. It's hard to do that, isn't it? It's very difficult to even begin to put ourselves back into the shoes of people three centuries ago. And I want to start there at that point, if we can imagine it. I'm just going to take an imaginary date for a minute, and that would be 300 years ago in uh, 1722. Now, the focus today of what we look at are events that happened in the 7th and 8th decades of that 18th century, 1770 through 1776 especially, but there was so much that led up to that, and I think it's vital for us to see our celebration of the 4th of July and what it really means. We know literally they actually signed the document of the Declaration on the 2nd, so it was really yesterday when they first signed it, and then there was a couple of missing signatories, and so they reconvened on the 4th, so it became the 4th of July. But this entire weekend, we might think of it this way, and there's a particular problem that we have today, and it's a very acute problem. And it is that many people have come to a point of exhaustion about the troubles of the nation and uh, the perils of the nation, the contradictions, the cultural conflicts, the, the, the deep, deep, and deeply intracted problems of our country. And we could waste, and I mean waste, we could waste hours in conversation just griping and complaining about what's wrong. Couldn't we? How many of you know we could certainly do that? But, but I believe there's a very, there's a laser-like focus that uh, the child of God, followers of the Lord Jesus, a laser-like focus that our hearts should have 
on what it means to be followers of Jesus as American citizens. What does that mean? There's even argument over what that means today, even in evangelical circles. There's a lot of uh, murkiness about this issue. And I am struck by something that I think is helpful to think back 300 years, because if you were born in 1722, then by the time of the Revolutionary War, you would have been in your 50s. But in that 50-year time frame, 54-year time frame, really, to 1776, there were massive factors that were used of God to shape an epoch in history that touches us today in such a way that we can truly say, even in the troubles of today's America, we could truly say, we, like they, we have come to God's kingdom moment for such a time as this. If we understand how desperate, how difficult, how impossible the odds were against those God used by the faith that came from their understanding of the magnitude of the gift of liberty from Almighty God, and many of them, not all, but many of them, drawing that intentionally from, from, from a, a growing understanding of Scripture, then we could say, we could truly say, that one of our real tasks in this Independence Day weekend, I believe, as followers of Jesus, far beyond the noise of the news, would be to have refocused prayer as followers of Jesus on what it means to truly love America, truly love America. Now, I know some quickly, and you see this reflected in social media, people are blasting the church for being too pro-American and being too identified with America. And there is an error down that trail of idolizing a country or, or, or uh, fusing together one's love of country with some identifying that with being a, being a Christian in such a way that the fine distinctions get blurred and a loyalty that should be to Christ alone becomes to country or to one's view of country. But we're, we recognize that danger. We recognize that the human mind can idolize anything wrongly, can't it? The human mind can idolize your 401k wrongly. The, the human mind can idolize an automobile or a person or a movement or a political leader. And there is a definitely, we don't deny, there's treachery down that trail of idolizing political leaders. Can I hear an amen? That's a treacherous path. But the, 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 the thing that concerns me is that Whenever there's an overreaction to something false, quote-unquote Christian nationalism, when there's an overreaction to something false, oh, what happens is the human brain goes to the opposite extreme and literally begin to idolize a hatred for the country, literally begin to blast and denigrate and undermine and see everything about America as somehow tainted and poisoned. That's 
not only sad, that's not only tragic, that not only breaks my heart as a lover of this country, but it's just flat wrong. It's just totally historically inaccurate. So, can't do much in a one session, but boy, we ought to take a run at this. And with your Bible in 2 Kings 19, I think we have a classic example of something that I found evidence of that the founders, that many of those who were instrumental in the signing of the Declaration of Independence and those whose heart had been turned toward the liberty that would come and that had to come once the tyranny of the great British crown increased upon the colonies, that they drew from the Bible great examples about what it meant to pray in times of distress. So when you go in your own Bible to 2 Kings 19, it's, it's really notable that Hezekiah, who is one of the notably smart and godly kings of Judah, that Hezekiah prayed. And Hezekiah's prayer in the 19th chapter of 2 Kings gives us a model for today, but it is striking that it's a model that founders consciously drew from in their day. So when we say that we're called by God for such a time as this in our country, we can be in common cause with brothers and sisters following Christ who were born 300 years ago. The bond between us is stronger than we might imagine, and the distance between us is not nearly as great as we imagine. So 2 Kings 19 says this. I'm reading the New American Standard translation. And when King Hezekiah heard it, now the it in this verse is a direct taunt and threat from Rabshakeh, who was the commanding general of the forces of Assyria, the dominant world power, the governing power of that region of that time in history. When King Hezekiah heard the threat, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priest, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, a message from King Hezekiah to the much beloved and esteemed prophet Isaiah. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth and there's no strength to deliver. What a graphic way to describe the desperation of that time. If you've loved America, if you've loved the country that you were born in and that you grew up in, and, it, and if you've in, in any way imbibed uh, the meaning of great songs many of us learned as kids, my country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing, land of my father's pride, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if that was a part of the very way you saw your country, and yet then you see your country 
in the throes of wretched and wrenching arguments and fights that seem to have no ending. A political environment that seems to be just full of conflict and unending accusations flying back and forth across the ether. And if that burdens you today, then you might put yourself in the shoes of those who brought the message to Isaiah. We feel like when we look at the freedoms that we cherish and the values that are so vital to a wholesome society, we look at it like people... Like, like a pregnancy that's come to birth, and yet in the labor room there's no strength to deliver. And there's no C-section <laughs> in this illustration. So perhaps the Lord your God will hear all the words of Rabshika, this commanding general, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, they're saying a message from the king to Isaiah Isaiah, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. Now, friends, today, for such a time as this, you and I can begin to do exactly what Isaiah was asked to do. Pray fervently, boldly, faithfully for the remnant, for God's people who love him, who cherish the word of God above any political party, who acknowledge Christ as Lord over the very origin of this country, and who say, better days lie ahead. God has a bright purpose and future for this land that we love. I believe that. And it is anchored in the very crisis moment that we see in 2 Kings 19, because when those servants left Isaiah's place of dwelling, Isaiah said to them, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid, because of the words that you have heard. I'd like to ask you to underline in verse 6 this phrase, because of the words you have heard. Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard. Now, this is a parallel to our time in a very remarkable way because it is the words that we hear that are impacting the way we see the potential for the future renaissance or awakening or a new dawn for the liberties of America. Now, now we know that in the timing of God, that there are many situations that God uses uh, for the benefit of breaking through the barriers that are formed by sinful actions. So look down at verse 14 of this 19th chapter of 2 Kings. Notice that there... Hezekiah then, when he got this uh, message back from Isaiah, his heart was encouraged. He took his stand. The threatening general from Assyria had begun to taunt the people of tiny little country of Judah because they had invaded the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, in 722. And now Judah, this tiny little insignificant nation, 
was under the reign of a godly king that God had placed there. And the Assyrian army was threatening to literally obliterate them. And he even taunted them by saying, don't put your trust in your God. Because we have more power than you can imagine. And you are goners. And all Hezekiah had to go on was the word God sent from Isaiah that promised not one of your soldiers will be killed, I will intervene in so many words. Now this story, this entire story, and the, you see a parallel of it in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, is one of the great examples of a military victory, a military miracle in history in which 185,000 Assyrian soldiers were swept away by the power of an angelic visitation. A total miracle that occurred that caused the deliverance of Judah. And Judah thrived for over a hundred more years after this situation. Much, much more time, more generational time for, for an awakening to the majesty of the covenant-keeping God to be anchored in their nation. Now, of course, we have no way of knowing the future, but the Bible always points us toward faith that gets us back to the reason for which the nation thrived. So in chapter 19, verse 14, the Assyrian commander has sent a threatening letter to Hezekiah. It's like the last warning. And Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messenger and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. Friends, today we could say this about our America. To our Lord, you are the God. You are the source. You're the deliverer. You're the one who gave founders and patriots in earlier times the grit and the determination against overwhelming odds like what Hezekiah faced. You gave them something in their heart that said, there's something brighter, there's something better, there's something in the future that we can seize and lay hold of. And God, even in times of judgment, God will have a remnant. Even when the season has come for a nation to, to be overthrown, God will powerfully work among his redeemed people. So in this text, notice that it says, you're the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, You've made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Now, what is really striking here, and I'd like to ask you to open your Bible now to Hebrews 11, verse 8, is that this passage dovetails for, with something that the, that, that the um, early founders understood was an example that they could draw hope from. Because if you had been born 300 years ago, and if you were in your, say, 40s or 50s, around the 1770 era, then you would see and have known, you would have grown up in a 
country where most of your childhood you would have been under the British crown and most of your childhood and growing up years you would have just thought that was normal because it wasn't until 1760 when King George became king in England and the changes began to slowly move into the lives of people so that the British government over a period of 15 years from 1760 to 1775 increasingly tightened the screws on the colonists such that even by 1775 many of the founders were still looking for some way to negotiate a peace with Great Britain by which they could continue to be citizens of the crown but have the guarantee of independence and autonomy. So this is a very slow-moving conflict that developed, and over time what happened was their faith was tested again and again. I drew your attention now to Hebrews 11 verse 8 because what we see about Abraham is so classic for them. Again, it was by faith that Abraham obeyed the summons to go out to a place which he would eventually possess, and he set out in complete ignorance of the destination. He set out, the NIV translation tells us, not knowing where he would end up. And these founders at this time were in the exact same situation. They entered into this era of conflict not knowing what the outcome. We go back and look at it and we can see in retrospect how, how uh, unusual and how unique the, the, the Revolutionary War and the signing of the Declaration of Independence and the battles that ensued after the signing and what still looked, even after 1776, looked like a lost cause for several years until finally this fledgling young nation, vibrant with liberty, formed in the crucible of sacrifice and visionary faith, began to thrive as the beacon of hope and democratic freedoms that has blessed untold hundreds of millions upon millions upon millions of people around the world. You think about it like this and you begin to realize Abraham's faith is a classic example. Abraham's faith is a classic example of how awesome it is that you and I also are called to be people of faith for such a time as this. We are put here to be people who will have a revitalized Vision, And so I want to ask you to think a little bit about that in light of the words of the Declaration of Independence. When you hear those words that are so familiar, we hold these truths to be self-evident. In that brief phrase is capsulized the combined spiritual and psychological truths that the founders had discovered through the hard-scrabble lives they lived, the increasing controversies and oppression from Great Britain through the Tax Act and through the acts that were designed to disarm the people and take away their weaponry and um, engage in searches and seizures without probable cause and all of the other causes 
of protests that are part of the Declaration of Independence. And in that time period, there was a missing element that we rarely hear about today. Because I asked you to think about um, what it would be like to be born in 1722. Well, if you had been, then if you and I had been born in 1722, then 20, at the age of 20, we would have begun to witness something that radically changed the way people saw government and their lives in a culture that was agrarian and uh, didn't have any of the communication or technology or transportation benefits that we have. So there was a slowly dawning realization, and scholars call it, of course, the Great Awakening. Yeah, it was 1741 when George Whitfield burst upon the scene proclaiming the good news of the gospel, when staid and formal and overly uh, denominationalized leaders like Jonathan Edwards, very professorial in their delivery, and yet suddenly began to see in the Bible that not only do people need to be in the church houses, they need a personal relationship with the true and living God. And every single soul must come into contention with Almighty God to say, will you bow the knee to the Lordship of Jesus? So the personal aspect of the Christian religion, which had become so formalized and so much part of the culture of the colonies, now became a flaming issue that was unavoidable. Have you bowed your knee to King Jesus? Have you repented of your sin? Have you accepted the gospel for yourself? Because the discovery became vividly clear in the Great Awakening that was capsulized many years later by David Duplessis so wisely when he said, God has no grandchildren. Each person must have that personal connection, that personal relationship with Christ. So the faith of Abraham, the faith by which Abraham went out, not knowing where he was going, became not only nationalized, it became personalized. And each believer in the Great Awakening multiplied hundreds of thousands of people across New England. And then it moved on into the Midwest and into the regions where pioneers were just beginning to expand the frontiers of the American experiment. And people were in brush arbor meetings and in chapels and in and in uh, Outdoor gatherings and arenas where in one place George Whitfield would appear every single day, six days a week, and proclaim the good news of the gospel to hundreds of people that would gather to hear what it meant to come to know Christ as your personal Savior. Right here in these beautiful rolling hills of Carroll County, if you and I as the crow fries could go right across these hills, just about three miles, I've biked it back in there and many times, there's a little shrine building called the Strawbridge Shrine of the Methodist Churches. And it's one of the, it was the earliest circuit riders in this part of, of, uh, of the Mid-Atlantic region that planted outposts where the good news of the gospel could be heard, and it was in this very era, a good 25 years before the Declaration of Independence. What was happening? God was moving. God was stirring people's hearts, and that awakening began to take root. And 
the result of it was that there was a common thread between those eventual 56 signers of the Declaration and you. A common thread between the 56 signers and you and me. And that common thread was that just as we did, they had insurmountable odds. Just as we would feel, the country looked like it was in terrible shape. Just as with us, there were political controversies that seemed like nobody could ever solve it. Just like today, there were reasons to fear that these American colonies would be vanquished under the excessive dominance of that distant empire, the British, until God began to raise up champions who drew from the very lesson that we saw in 2 Kings. Now, one of these is a, a very interesting example because Joseph Warren is a notable figure in the whole experience of the, uh, the Revolutionary War. Joseph Warren is considered the hero of the Battle of Bunker Hill. By dying on that hill on a June day in 1775, this young 24-year-old courageous patriot blazed a trail for many others that caused the life of young Dr. Warren, already become a medical doctor at that point, had attended Harvard, had begun medical practice when the controversies over the Stamp Act and all of these uh, incursions of the British, he began to write against it as a very young man. And his writing brought him in disfavor with the general appointed under the British crown that, that had jurisdiction over Boston. And he began to be a hunted man. And so in his early 20s, Joseph Warren became um, a compatriot of Paul Revere. And in fact, was, was one was the person who notified Paul Revere that the British were coming. But in this era, this uh, two to three year period before the Declaration of Independence, as it began to be clear that... Uh, that the British were not going to back off. There were efforts at negotiation, and at one point, a letter was sent from Great Britain through an emissary to try to get the American colonists to agree to certain lighter restrictions, but to not give them their independence. And in response to that letter, Joseph Warren wrote these words. We appeal to the God of heaven. And they drew this from the story of Hezekiah. We appeal to the God of heaven who is Lord over the kingdoms of this earth. And we appeal for justice between your demands and our claims. And then he said this exactly. You know that the cause of America is just you know that she contends for that freedom to which all men are entitled. She stands against oppression. She stands against oppression and barbaric savagery. They're writing to say to the king of England, we appeal not on the basis 
of, of our, um, not, not on the basis of our military power, but because we again make our appeal to the God of heaven to decide between you and us, and reflecting his faith, we pray that in the doubtful scale of battle, we may be successful as we have justice on our side and that the merciful Savior of the world may forgive our oppressors. Now this is just one excerpt of of hundreds that were penned by men and women who were born 300 years ago, had as many reasons to be despairing as any of us could ever imagine. And yet in the Great Awakening, God brought the mighty flame of the Word of God into an entire culture that paved the way for people to see there's something bigger than these governments. There's something more mighty than the marching boot of the Redcoats. There is something stronger than the force of the British Empire. And it is Almighty God. It is the God of heaven and earth who has placed us here and put in us a stirring for the liberty of the conscience of every single individual before his or her God. And out of this cauldron and and crucible of learning came an understanding that can best be summarized in those two words that we saw in Hebrews 11, and that is, and I'd like you to say them aloud with me, those are the words, by faith. Think of it and say it with me. By faith. By faith. Think of how beautiful that is, that in your own mind, in your own heart, that you can say it aloud. Would you shout it out with me? By faith. And yes, the intensity of the conflict got more and more difficult. By April of 1775, negotiations had failed and it appeared inevitable that the British were going to have to send more troops to squash the colonists' aspirations. In fact, while Samuel Adams was away in Philadelphia from Boston to to attend to the details of the Continental Congress, it was this Joseph Warren, this young doctor, who assumed Adams' role in Boston. And his work in 1775 became rousing together and piecing together militias of farmers and shopkeepers and individuals from the trades and other doctors like himself and lawyers and ministers who would be equipped and armed for the day that they knew now was certain to come. And so when Paul Revere did that famous nighttime ride and said, the British are coming, guess who told him? It was Joe Warren. Yeah, it was Joseph Warren. This guy who had come out of Harvard, become a doctor, had a bright future ahead of him in a career, but when duty for his country called, his his dedication became to the cause of liberty until, of course, that fateful day on Bunker Hill when he gave his life when a a cannonball, when when a musket ball hit him between the eyes 
And Joseph Warren died at the age of 24, 25. Here's a young man who is one of many whose life reflects what has been repeated over and over again. If we had time today, which I know we don't, to touch on heroes of the Civil War, heroes of the World War II, heroes in Vietnam who went into the blazing fire of certain death in order to defend liberty for others usually. These principles should not be cast aside lightly by evangelicals in the church today who are mad because it took some time for the declarations, truths that were self-evident to become real in the civil society. It is absolutely vital to understand. And I think of all the things that Warren left us was a great statement that he made that has been true for so many others who have served their country. When Joseph Warren, just weeks before his own death, was rallying these militiamen, here is what he said. Ronald Reagan lifted this very quote in his inaugural address on January 20th of 1981. Dr. Warren said, Our country is in danger, but not to be despaired of. On you depend the fortunes of America. You are to decide the important question upon which the rest rest the happiness and the liberty of millions yet unborn. Act worthy of yourselves. Could it be, my friends, that when I ask you to imagine being born 300 years ago, and these words were written 247 years ago, could it be Could it be that these words are still as true for you and me now in such a time as this? Could it be true that the future of real liberty, government under law, government accountable to the consent of the governed, the realization of the supreme God who gave us these liberties, and that government has no right or place to usurp the God-given liberty of the right to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And it's for the preservation of those rights that governments are instituted by men, but they're fallible. And and the, the founders understood. So is it possible that it's still true for you and me who love America that we could act worthy of ourselves by just saying, hey, if guys like George Washington and all of those whose little, whose toes and ankles and feet were freezing in the bitter cold of Valley Forge, if they could do it because they, with no assurance of success, almost certain defeat lay ahead of them in that bitter winter of Valley Forge. If they could do it, is it and, 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 if, and if in the midst of that and, and out of that experience that men like George Washington could look back later and, and, and testify when it, when it looked absolutely impossible to overcome. And later, and later Washington could say, one of the things that happened when I was out there, you know, tending to all the troops at Valley Forge was that I was miraculously spared of death more than once. These are Washington's words. 
By his miraculous care that protected me beyond all human expectation, I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me and yet escaped unhurt. The guy who's called the father of our country. Well, I'm going to leave you today in Hebrews 11 because, and if you toggle back there, I hope you can see that The reason the relevance of what these founders studied about Hezekiah's prayer, what they discovered about Abraham's faith, what they knew instinctively was necessary to prevail, uh, they fit, these founders that we talk about on 4th of July weekend, they fit so, so beautifully into this amazing paragraph of Hebrews 11.27. I hope you'll see it in your own Bible because it's it's a keeper. It's one to read, maybe read to the children uh, through this uh, weekend. You see, the writer of the epistle of the Hebrews, as he outlines the great exploits of faith, he, he goes through Abel and, and, and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Joseph and the patriarchs, and then he, he, he's, he's carried away like some preacher that can't, doesn't know when he's supposed to stop, like, like this guy. And he's carried away. And he says, Woo, I don't even have time to tell you. Hebrews eleven twenty seven. I don't even have time to tell you. Of all these others like Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and Barak and David and Samuel and the pride. I don't even have time to get to the David story, he says. Who did what? Read it with me. Who, by faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and became valiant in battle. You know, that, especially that last phrase could characterize what we celebrate on the 4th of July. They, be, they, were, they didn't feel valiant or especially courageous, but when they got into the battle, with the word of God and the truths of God-given liberty burning brightly in their hearts, they got valiant in battle. Would you say three words with me, four words, getting bold in battle? Getting bold in battle. Say it with me again. Getting bold in battle. Guess who can do that? You can do that. Guess who has a place to conquer because of God's gift of faith. Think about the fact that our struggle today is is difficult, but nowhere near as ominous and overcoming as it seemed to them. Because even King George himself, who'd been in power only 15 years when the final, these fights began with the militias, King George himself had declared this, we will put a speedy end to the American colonies rebellion. And I always get a laugh out of what the sitting prime minister of Great Britain said at that same time to give you a glimpse into how sure the British were they could defeat these fledgling American colonies sitting prime minister said, I can never acquiesce in the absurd opinion that all men are equal. (laughs) Don't you love that? Don't you just love that? But you see, 
What brought them to this place of finally emerging victorious was the realization, yes, the realization from the Bible. Discoveries in the Bible ignited zeal in the hearts of these farmers, merchants, shopkeepers, and lawyers as Great Britain increased its demands on the colonies. Well, of course, the overwhelming odds in your life, when you look at America today, it can look bleak. I see that. But you know what? Four years from now, we'll celebrate the 250th birthday of America. Wouldn't it be fantastic if people in thousands of small congregations like this one got sort of stirred up today and said, wait a minute, they're not taking my America from me. Wait, wait, wait just a minute. I'm not even letting fellow Christians go around just bad-mouthing my country all the time like it's negligible to just trample on the history of America. No, as a matter of fact, I think, I, I think maybe, maybe God's calling me for such a time as this to champion why America made it out of that, out of that Revolutionary War and why God's used it as a lamp in spite of America's many flaws you can still say God did something remarkable in the forming and shaping and preserving and expanding of this nation. And yeah, there's a lot wrong. There's a lot evil. There's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of stuff that's just inexcusable. But Almighty God has never let down that scepter of righteousness that we can appeal to. So I'm going to ask you to pray. And as we close today, I'm going to ask you to simply join with me. Stand to your feet for a moment. And we're going to take a moment on this Independence Day weekend to, to give thanks to God for the beauty of this gift of America in spite of all of its flaws. And we're going to say like they did, we're not alone in this. Like Hezekiah, we spread out this letter. We're not going to be afraid of the words we're hearing today of the demise of a once great nation. No, no, no. We are here. We are here for such a time as this. And God's grace will set captives free so that we can be lights shining in a dark place. Oh, Lord, we thank you today. We thank you for the gift of freedom. We thank you that Galatians 5 and other scripture founders knew well, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And then I'm going to ask you to pray a simple prayer, and that is, I'll say it first, Lord God, author of freedom, Give our nation a new birth of freedom. Would you say that with me to be Lord God, author of freedom, give our nation a new birth of freedom. Let's pray together. Lord God, author of freedom, give our nation a new birth of freedom. Let's do it again. Lord God, author of freedom, give our nation a new birth of freedom. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.